breathe. And the breath of the Holy Spirit is, is the thing that brings life. And we have to just be so careful as Christians that we don't allow the things of the world to, to throttle the life of Jesus in us. Because if there's darkness in us, woe, woe for the world. Because we are the examples of, of Jesus loving, Jesus shining, full of life people. And we dare not let the world snatch that away from us again. Amen? Not like a sermon in and of itself. But what, I, I'm, I'm going to be speaking in Romans 1 this morning. And Romans 1, it says a lot of things. But one of the things that I want to pick up on a little bit later is this thing of the world knew its creator and substituted the creator for created things. Substituted the source of all life. God is not only sovereign over the world, he's the source of all life. Jesus said, life is found in me. If you remain in me, you'll have life. But the world substituted the creator for created things, things that God had made, good things which God had made. It switched it out and thought that everything would be fine by worshipping and loving and, and going to created things and worshipping these things. But actually, it's such a poor substitute that you actually starve yourself to death spiritually. It's a profound book, book of Romans, but I'm going to be focusing on chapter 1 this morning. There is the potential for a bit of a series in Romans, but we'll see how we go. You know, we're not good at series in this church. We tend to, uh, we tend to do this a bit because we're trying to follow the Holy Spirit. It's not good because we lost cop. I'm not lost cop. There are lost cop people in Josh Ten, but I'm, I'm not lost cop. We're following the Holy Spirit. So, um, why, why the Book of Romans? Um, there's a reason why I want to focus a little bit on Romans. Romans is a beautiful book about the gospel. It is an incredibly powerful, beautiful book describing the beauty of the gospel. There's such a clarity that it brings to the gospel. I've had, a, I've had the chance to share the gospel with about three or four people or five people, I can't remember, within the space of a week or so. And that's very unusual for me because I'm a pastor, so I, I spend most of my time with Christians. But God set it up that I, I, I had the opportunity to speak the gospel to people. And it was incredible. It was so cool. I, I got set on fire again for Jesus. And, and Zandi, like, as I'm debriefing with Zandi afterwards, it's like she's talking to like, who is this guy, you know. Uh, I do love Jesus. And I, 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 but there's something, about, there's something about sharing the gospel with people that makes us come alive. Because the gospel is so beautiful. It's like, you know, when you talk about something beautiful, you remember how beautiful it is? And you are like, man, this is such good news. You know, the gospel actually means good news. Evangelion. It, it's, it's good news. Isn't that a great name for the gospel? It's good news. It's not only good news. I mean, it, I don't want to change the name now from gospel to something else. It should be called the best news, right? Because there's lots of good news in the world, but it doesn't compare to the gospel. It's the best news. Um, so I, I've got a bit of a slideshow this morning, so hopefully you can see. Um, but I wanted to just uh, start with the first one. 
um, a little bit of an overview of the book of Romans. I don't like intros. Whenever I get a YouTube clip with an intro, I, you know that little button, button that says skip intro? I'm that guy, you know? So I, this is going to be a very short intro because intros I find are boring. Get, let's get to the meat, right? For the, those of you who love intros, here's one. Um, the book of Romans was actually written at a very important moment in the kingdom of, of God because the, the Gentiles were flooding into the kingdom at a rapid rate. And we think, okay, cool, what's, the, what's so extraordinary about that? Most of us are Gentiles, so like what we do, like what's, what's so significant about that? Well, what's significant about that is that for thousands of years, the kingdom had been mostly a Jewish thing. So now you've got a church in Rome that's mostly Gentile, and the Jews are struggling. They are really struggling to understand how did this happen, you know. Um, and that raised a whole bunch of questions for the Jews, and it raised a bunch of challenges for the Gentiles. So a couple of the questions that they were wrestling with in this church was, you know, has God permanently rejected the Jewish nation? Is that what's happened yet? Because no one's talking about the Jewish nation anymore. It's just all about the gospel and about Jesus and about the good news of this and that and the next thing. And the Jews are like, hey, we've got a really long history with God. You may have heard of the kingdom of God. Like that was, that was our thing, you know. Like, uh, so why are we not talking about that anymore, you know? A natural question. So they're wrestling with questions which were unique to the time that they were in. Now we look back a couple of thousand years later. You're like, well, what's the big deal about, you know, it's all, it all makes sense now in hindsight, right? So the other question they were wrestling with, if, if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the Messiah that was promised to the Jews for thousands of years, and now he turns up, and, but most of the Jewish people seem to have rejected him. What's up with that? How, how did that happen? How did the Jewish Messiah get rejected by most of the Jews? That's, that's confusing. And I, I, I've got to be honest, I would also be quite confused about that at the time. Uh, why are there more Gentiles loving this Jewish Messiah than the Jews? It is a, it is a perplexing um, question. That, does God save Gentiles the same way that he saves Jews? It's one of the questions they were wrestling with. Um, you know, if, if, if now that the Gospels here, no one's talking about the law anymore, the law of Moses, which was the best thing that ever happened to them. They loved it, they revered it, it was sacred to them. So why did God even give the law in the first place? Why is no one talking about that anymore? So for us, these things are old news. But for them, it was like, hey, this is, this, we've got some serious questions here. Um, can a person be saved by keeping the law? You know, uh, so it, now well, the interesting thing is when you ask somebody, what's the book of Romans about? They'll probably tell you it's a beautiful description of the gospel. That's what I would probably say. It's one of the best explanations and the longest explanations of the gospel that we have. But actually, it seems like Paul almost spoke about the gospel accidentally because he was answering these questions that the Jews were asking. And in answering their questions, he gave us one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel message that we have. Um, so thanks be to the Lord for that. So now when we come to chapter 1, um, chapter 1 is a really interesting passage because the gospel is good news, right? It's such good news. It's beautiful and it's exciting. And then you read chapter 1 and you're like, whoa, that doesn't seem like that good news to me. This is pretty dark. Um, but what's interesting is Paul is actually, he's almost like a good doctor, fully describes and diagnoses the malady, the illness, before he gives the remedy. That's what he's doing here. He's actually um, explaining what went wrong with the human race. And why did Jesus need to come? 
So that's why it's such a dark passage. That's why it seems like really bad news. Because if you don't fully appreciate what went wrong, you won't really appreciate the gospel. Um, so that's what Romans 1 is about. But one of the reasons why I love Romans 1 is I'm one of these very curious people that looks around at the world today and thinks, what on earth happened? And I'm definitely not the only person that asks that question. Probably most people at some point in their life will look around at the world and think, why are people acting so strange? Why are they killing each other? You know, why, why, why does some, what actually went wrong? And Romans 1 is one of the most beautiful um, insights into the way God sees the world. And God's diagnosis of what went wrong here. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so the, I've entitled this sermon, um, Romans 1, The Human Condition. The Human Condition. And then it introduces the gospel into that. But he's also setting a bit of a rhetorical trap for the Jews here, which is important to understand. He's starting by talking about the wicked Gentiles. And as he describes the wickedness of the Gentiles, most Jewish audience will be thinking, Paul, I'm so following you right now. I couldn't agree with you more. I, you, know, you know, as I look at the Gentile nation, I just shake my head, you know. Uh, what a lousy, wicked, lawless bunch. Uh, and so he's clever because he's describing the human nature. He's describing the Gentile. And he even picks on specific Gentile sins, which the Jews are not guilty of. And they would, and they would just be nodding their heads so knowingly and agreeing with him. But he's setting them up because in chapter 2, he turns his guns and he starts talking about the sins of the Jewish nation and how actually you've got the law but you sin just as badly as the Gentiles. And then at that point, they've been agreeing with him for so long, they're now, okay, you got me. <laughs> That's his trick. And so the point that he's trying to make is actually he makes a little bit later on that all have sinned. Whether you've got the law or whether you've got conscience, we've all sinned. All of us need a savior. Jews, Gentiles, that's what he's actually leading up to. So now I want to turn to um, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Now, this is a profound little passage. If I had to take a bit of time to unpack this passage properly, just this what we've got on the screen, I'd be unpacking the whole of the book of Romans. And so what you'll notice with the letters, that oftentimes they give you a little summary passage, and they'll sum up most of the themes of the whole book in these punchy little summaries. This is one of them. And so this is a profound passage, and I want to just pick out a few things here. Now, I'm talking about the book of Romans, and I'm talking about Romans chapter 1, but I'm doing this for a reason. Obviously, I, I feel like this is what some of, the, some of the things the Lord wants to say to us specifically now in 2022 in Cape Town, right? So don't think about that's a cool teaching for them. There's th things the Lord wants to say to us this morning, and one of them is right here. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith. There's so much beauty in this passage. The first part that I love is like, I am under obligation to preach the gospel. Isn't that 
profound. I owe it to the world to share the good news with them. That's not just true for Paul. I, Luke Halley, am under obligation to preach the gospel so long as there's breath in my lungs to every single person who will hear it, who will listen to me. And so are you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So nothing changed there, right? There's a lot about the gospel that is embarrassing today, if I'm very honest. You go on UCT campus, you go into your colleagues in your workplace. Many of you have shared these stories with me. It is hard to share the gospel. You feel like such an idiot most of the time. You feel like as you share it, you have to, like within three seconds, have to just say, but don't hear what I'm not saying, right? Isn't it true? At that time, there was a lot to be ashamed of when it came to the gospel. Think of it, you're in Rome, right? The pomp and ceremony of Rome. You've got these kings parading themselves through the streets with stallions and chariots and the might and power of Rome. And now you're going to tell somebody, let me tell you the good news about a king. A king, really? Yeah, tell me about this king. Yeah, he was crucified. Anyway, um, let's move on quickly because crucifixion for them was like the scum of the earth got crucified. The scum, the the the. The immoral, the, the petty thieves, the, the, they were hung up naked to shame them, right? Now you want to tell me about your king and he was crucified. Are you kidding me? Don't, don't waste my time. Let, let, what? So, so you can imagine Paul saying, I, I'm, yes, I'm talking about a crucified king. And you know what? I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of salvation. Yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was shamed. But he was raised from the dead. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And every Roman emperor is going to bow before my king. And I will tell you about my king Jesus, even though it's a bit embarrassing, because he is the son of God, raised back to life again because of the power of his Father in heaven. So he had to fight this thing of shame in his generation. And so do we. So do we. Almost everything you explain about the gospel today is embarrassing. I mean, you just, start, you just start by saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. But don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure your religion is also precious and it's also true and there's lots of good things about you. You know, it's like you just have to start explaining it as soon as you share it. And then you talk about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Then goes on to talk about if you don't receive him, you'll be condemned to hell where you'll burn for all eternity. And you're like, but don't hear what I'm not saying. Because now you're talking about hell, right? And hell is like one of the most embarrassing things to talk about in our day and age. Because it's just not cool to talk about eternal judgment. You know? So nothing has changed. But for us, that we would say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. Amen? I'm going to go to verse 18. We're talking about the good news of the gospel, verse 18, chapter 1. We're talking about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's what I was saying before. It starts with a very bleak picture. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's important to start with the facts that actually, before we can talk about the good news of the gospel, we have to start with the fact that when you are born, when I am born, when people are born into the world, we are born into a state of rebellion against God. 
We are not God's friends. That's not our natural default position. We are born actually as enemies of God. And through the gospel, we are reconciled with God. It's important to start with the facts. And so the gospel reconciles us with a God who's our enemy and we become friends. We become adopted into his family. That makes sense. He says something interesting there. He says that humans suppress the truth. Got the next one. Humans suppress the truth. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then he explains how. How, now, this is a very profound insight about humans. It's very profound. It's not only that we're ignorant of the truth. When we do hear it or when we do witness with it, we actually suppress it. And it takes true courage to own up to the truth and align ourselves with the truth and repent of our sins. But this is what the scriptures say. What can be known about God is obvious through his creation. Verse 23. They exchanged the glory of God for idols made by their own hands. Verse 25, they worshipped and created, worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Though they knew what they were doing was sinful. They not only do them, but celebrate others who do the same. And so in these ways, humans suppress the truth. There was a documentary a little while ago about a completely unrelated thing, but it's got a great title for what we're talking about yet, which, which is called uh, The Inconvenient Truth. An inconvenient truth. The inconvenient truth that there is a God who created all things, who created me, that created the world, and he created it in a certain way for a certain purpose. It's an inconvenient truth because as soon as you acknowledge that truth, it means something needs to change in me needs to change in what I worship, in how I live. I have to acknowledge a Lord that's higher than me. And so the Bible would again and again say that humans suppress the truth. They know it's true, but they suppress it because of pride. We don't want to acknowledge a lawgiver that defines what's right and wrong. We don't want to acknowledge a Lord that I worship and I honor. We want ourselves to be king of our own lives. We want to be autonomous from God. And it also says, because we love sin too much. The Bible says, light came into the world, but the world loved darkness and hid from the light. We love sin too much. And so, this is really profound, because a lot of time, a lot of people waste a lot of time trying to convince the world that God exists. And there is some merit in doing that. But actually, the Bible says that through creation and conscience, God's given witness to us about himself, that he exists. We look at creation, it speaks about a creator. We look at our conscience that tells us what's right and wrong. And we intuitively know what sin is. But the Bible says we sin against our conscience. And by sinning against our conscience, we actually become callous. And these are evidence of the existence of God. And then it says we worship created things rather than the creator. We worship created things rather than the creator. And so this is what I was speaking about earlier. So I said I was jumping ahead of myself. I was here. And see how far ahead of myself I was. The world obsessively, compulsively chases after material things and worships them as if they can give 
me life. As if they can give me joy. As if they can give me meaning and peace and morality. But because they are false gods, they leave me empty. They leave me lonely. They leave me anxious. They leave me depressed and empty. And, and many of us have been there. I definitely have. And so some, what are some of those things that they compulsively ch- chase? Created things. Um, fame. Money. Sex. Career. I mentioned alcohol being a substitute joy giver. It's, there's a reason why alcohol is so big in the world. It's a substitute joy giver. But they are not rewarded with the fruits of the Spirit. They are rewarded with disappointment. Desperate, desperate disappointment. False idols set you up for massive disappointment. So you have to chase them harder and harder. And so this is profound. Eh? This insight of, the, of Romans chapter 1 about the state of the world right now. They, they, they chased created things but rebelled against the Creator. But the Bible also speaks to Christians and I mentioned this earlier. We have found the Creator. We have found the one that's worthy of worship. But there's a danger that we go back to worshipping created things and that these things find too big of a place in our life and that we actually begin to choke. Nothing can substitute for the life of Jesus. Um, We're going to go on now. This is not talking about the world anymore. This is talking about us. Now this is turning personal. This is turning pastoral right here. How do we know? if we've got idols in our lives. The Bible talks about um, material things becoming idols in our lives and warns us about that. Here are some of the ways you'll know if something in your life has become too important, it's actually become an idol. It produces anxiety. Why does it produce anxiety? Because you're looking for security and fulfillment in something that can never meet your expectations. And so it produces anxiety. You worried about losing that thing. You worried about, uh, so, I mean, I always go back to this example just because it's my own example and it's the best one I have for me, right? I lo- I love surfing, but I know the difference between someone who loves surfing and someone who worships surfing like it's God. How do I know? Anxiety. You think, but surfers they like they stone out on weed. How can they be anxious, right? Even though they stoned out on weed, they still get very anxious. And it manifests itself in anger. Rage. You think, no, not surface. Ask Marius. <laughs> Rage. Why? Because if you take surfing from me, you take the only thing that I live for. That'll create anxiety. It does. But that's just my example. Think of your examples. Think of um, how precious things God's given to us produce anxiety like kids why do kids produce anxiety because if they become so precious to you that they become like God it will create anxiety think about your career think about anything that it is for you if it creates anxiety it's become it's become an idol leads to constant disappointment idols lead to constant disappointment because we're putting an expectation on them that they can't meet Everything else plays second fiddle. It's how I order my time, my money, my energy, my resources, my emotions. And it makes me regularly skip out on finding true life in Christ. 
I neglect my times with Jesus because of the busyness of my adults. Church where I find life in Jesus and fellowship, community. And it's the thing I obsess about. It's the thing I daydream about. It's the thing I plan for. It's the thing that I... (laughs) It's the one thing I can't live without. I've got a little diagram here for you about two ways in which people sometimes order their life. Sometimes diagrams help. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do. We'll see. We'll see if this one works. On the right, sometimes people have a dichotomy in their life. They divide, they divide up the things I do for Jesus on this side and the things I do for me on that side. You can substitute Facebook for whatever your generation's into right now. I know Facebook is outdated. No one really does Facebook anymore. So for, for me, these are the things that refresh me. The thing, when I'm thinking me time, this, these are the things that I enjoy. When I'm, when I'm worshipping Jesus, those are the things that I do on the right. But actually, that's, a, that's actually a false separation of your life. It's, compa- it's compartmentalizing Christ. But if you want to experience life in every area of your life, if you want those good things which God has given you to actually bring joy, they need to find their right place, which is where? Everything centered around Jesus. When I rest, I rest with Jesus. I don't take a break from Jesus. I rest with him. When I'm with my family, I enjoy my family with Jesus. When I surf, I surf. When I surf, whatever you do. Walk your dog. Whatever you do for fun. People do strange things for fun. Do it with Jesus. Enjoy Jesus while you do it. Thank him for it. Acknowledge him for it. And so, as we put Jesus in the center, we enjoy all of these things, Jesus. They find their rightful place. And they actually bring joy. Amen? We're going to skip now to verse 21. Verse 21. The judgment that came on the world by replacing the Creator with created things is in verse 21. This was the consequence of substituting God out for idols. There was a judgment that came on humanity. This is very insightful, by the way, into what's going on in the world right now. Dark hearts and dim minds. I'll explain what dim minds mean. It doesn't mean people are stupid, although that is also true, but that's not specifically what it's saying here. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, Or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish hearts being darkened means hearts that not only sin. But they've been poisoned by sin. Addicted to sin. Compulsively sin. Actually the Bible speaks about becoming a slave to sin. You think you're doing things for pleasure. But those things begin to take ownership of you. You actually can't stop anymore. Addicted to sin. And minds which are futile means minds that are full of knowledge, constantly learning, but never actually arrive at the answers to the questions of meaning, questions of purpose, questions of morality. It's just knowledge that puffs up. 
but it doesn't actually satisfy the deep desire that I have to find what's true, to find what's God, to find what's meaningful for my life. Amen? That's the futility. It's like a lot of work that accomplishes nothing. Futile minds. And then in verse 26, this is possibly one of the most profound parts of this passage. I'll read it for you, then I'll explain some of the things that this tells us about the nature of sin. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Two things I want to highlight about this passage. I mentioned earlier that chapter 1 is focused on Gentiles, so that the Jewish that the Jews nod vigorously. Yeah, what a wicked bunch. Homosexuality was a sin that was very prevalent amongst Gentiles, but the Jewish community wasn't that guilty on it. So that's why he's picking up specifically on this sin, because he knows the Jews are going to be, yeah, yeah, you just tell it, Paul. Just share it. That, that's what they like, you know. But then he goes on later to talk about a whole bunch of other sins as well. And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, and you do the same thing. And so the thing that I want to say that's profound about sin here is he speaks about it being contrary to nature. Why is sin contrary to nature? Because God is creator. Let me explain what I mean by that. God created humans. And sin is something God hates. Why? Because sin is doing something contrary to God's purpose for our lives. And every time you do something contrary to God's purpose for your life, it's going to destroy your life. Sin is, is, is detestable to God because it destroys our lives. We sometimes think of sin as something that's naughty but nice. And God's got this list of things to do that's not naughty because even though it's lekker, he wants to kill our joy. God's not like that. God's a loving Father that knows if you do those things, it's going to destroy you. That's not how I designed you. Isn't that profound? Shapes the way we think about sin. Sometimes God will say, don't do that. That's sinful. And you'll say, but God, I don't know why you say I mustn't do that. Just trust God that he knows that that's going to destroy your life. The amount of times I've had to say to my daughter, don't do that. I don't want you to do that. And she'll say, but why? And I'll say, I'd love to explain, but you, you, you fall. Actually, an explanation is not going to help you right now. You fall, right? Like maybe when you're 14, I can explain it to you. But right now, just trust me that that's not good. That's going to destroy you. Now, how much more God, the creator of the entire universe, when he says to you and to me, don't do that. Don't do that. And you say, but why, God? And he's going to say, hey, listen. When you've been with me for an eternity for a couple of thousand years, maybe you'll get it. But right now, just trust me, that's going to destroy your life. Don't do it. Isn't that profound? 
contrary to nature, God created nature, God created the world, God created you, God created me. He knows what's good for me. And I know that we as like enlightened, you know, intellectual, uh, you know, savvy, you know, modern people, we don't like to, tell, to be told these kind of things. But the reality is, that's where faith comes in. We trust God. He knows what's best for me and for you. So I'm closing now to apply this passage to our lives. And I'm going to just repeat and recap and then we're going to pray. I believe God is restoring in us as a a congregation and as a generation a courage. A courage. People of faith that are courageous. That we could say like Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Yes, the world may not always understand it. But it is the power of God for salvation. Amen? Actually, we're going to pray for us just now. Maybe even you'd like a bit of prayer for a bit more courage. I'll probably join you. It's an intimidating thing, being sharing the gospel in our generation. It always has been. Seems like it's getting worse. Probably hasn't, but it's intimidating. Amen? <laughs> Number two, God has called us to worship the Creator. Not to worship created things. And sometimes our hearts slip into idolatry. We didn't intend to, but our life begins to be choked out of us. We begin to be strangled. Jesus is the life giver. There's no substitute. God hates sin because sin is destructive. And salvation is the good news of how God can make us righteous. Remember I said that that verse that I mentioned is the summary pretty much of the whole of the book of Romans? A righteousness of God. A righteousness from God. A righteousness that is by faith. The whole point of Romans 1 and Romans 2 is to say, you're so sinful, you're addicted to sin, you're a slave to sin, you need a savior. Amen? Jesus is the savior of the world. He came to bring a righteousness that is of God, a righteousness that is from God, a righteousness that is by faith. And so I yield to him and I say, God, I know I'm sinful. I need your help. I'm not denying it. I need your help. Would you make me righteous? Would you make me new in my heart, in my mind? I'm trusting you. I'm turning away from a life of sin. I'm choosing to follow you. But I'm choosing to follow you with the full acknowledgement that, I, that I'm weak and I need your power inside of me. Amen? Let's pray.